Morning, everyone. How are we? Uh, we are in John 5. If you've got your Bible, please open it up to John 5 this morning. We're going to be in this passage, and there's a lot. Let me just say before we even start, there is a lot in this passage today that we're going to have to walk through. So uh, please bear with me this morning. In the first service, I said that I literally skimmed my notes here. So uh, there's a lot going on. Uh, this morning in this passage. So let's just look at it together. Last week we were in John 5, the beginning of John 5, verses 1 uh, to 17. Jesus has just healed this man who has been incapacitated for 38 years. Jesus has just healed this man completely. There is no doubt about the reality of what happened here. This man was incapacitated. He, he couldn't walk for 38 years. Jesus turns up on the scene, heals him, and he picks up his bed and walks away. And there can be no doubt about what happened. The reality of what happened is clear to see. This man walks. And as we saw last week, this, this healing miracle, this work, this sign, this wonder that was performed by Jesus had no impact really on the hearts and minds of the Jews or of the, the religious leaders, other than that it hardened their heart further towards Jesus. It hardened their heart further towards Jesus. They were, the people, we talked about this last week, the people around the healing, the, the Jews, the religious leaders, they, they didn't care whether this man had been healed or not. All they cared about was someone breaking their religious rules. We talked about that last week about the Pharisees had created a system uh, over and above the Old Testament law where, where you couldn't get near the law even to break the law. They, were, they thought they were protecting God's law, but actually what they were doing were, was just putting many, many obstacles in the way of God's people. So they didn't care about this man being healed. They didn't care about the outcome. All they cared about was the status quo of the religious system that they had created. And anyone who would dare to break that was committing blasphemy. What shocked them most was that someone would do this thing on the Sabbath. And whilst we can criticize and critique and judge the religious leaders, we have to give them credit for one thing. And the one thing that we have to give them credit for was this. They had no problem grasping who Jesus said he was. No problem at all. They got it. They understood exactly who Jesus was claiming to be. Let's read the start of the passage today again, and we'll see that very clearly. This was why the Jews were seeking to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. That's why they were after him. They had no problem in understanding that here is Jesus and he is claiming to be God. Back in verse 17, Jesus was responding to their protest about healing this man on the Sabbath. And last week we didn't get time to, to cover it, and I just want to mention it today, what Jesus actually means in verse 17 here when he says, "My father," but Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. They come to him with this claim, how can you heal this man on the Sabbath? Jesus says, listen, my father is working till now, I'm going to work too. What does he mean by that? Well, if you think back to, to Genesis, Moses tells us in Genesis that my when, when the father finished the work of creation, he 
rested. When the Father finished the work of creation, he rested. But does that mean that he stopped carrying out acts of love and mercy and compassion and grace uh, to all people? No, it doesn't. He kept doing those things. Even when he rested, he was still maintaining and, and loving and showing mercy and grace to the world. And Jesus says, listen, even on the Sabbath, I'm going to do the same. I'm going to show love and mercy and kindness and, and generosity to the, to the world around me because that's what my father did as well. Even though he rested on the Sabbath, he did not stop. If the father had stopped working, the world would fall into chaos. And so Jesus says the same. Even though my father rested, he didn't stop working on the Sabbath, nor will I. And so this act of love and kindness towards this man was fully justified by Jesus. And so what comes next? We have this incident where the healing at the pool, we have Jesus say, justifying why he did it, what comes next? What comes next is what I would say, fundamental to the Christian faith. Fundamental to the Christian faith. What Jesus is going to do, if you've got a Bible like mine, uh, and, and it has red writing in it, red writing we know is designated as Jesus' words in some Bible translations. What we will see Jesus do in these next verses is set out specifically who he is. He's going to tell us who he is, and there's going to be no question or doubt about who he is claiming to be. And what I love about this part of the passage is that Jesus, when, the, when these people come to him and, and, and make accusations, Jesus doesn't correct them at all. Jesus doesn't say, oh no, there's been a misunderstanding here. I don't think you're quite getting it. He just lets it sit, and then he goes and explains exactly who he is, so there can be no doubt in their minds that Jesus is claiming to be God. No doubt. He just lets it sit. And what he does is make seven statements. Seven statements to say exactly who he is. And what we're going to do today is literally just walk through those seven statements. And what we're doing today is really important. And it may not feel like it, and it may not be your atypical sermon, let me just say. But what we're doing is really, really important. Because what we're doing is looking at who Christ claimed to be. And, who, and, and who, what Christ claimed to be sets Christianity apart from every other world religion. And we'll look at that in a moment and why that's important. But this will sound, let me just tell you now, it will sound a bit theological. That's what we do every Sunday. Why well, you see it or not, I, that's what we do. But it will sound a little bit more theological today than normal because we have seven statements from Jesus telling us who he is. What you've enrolled in today, really, let me say it to guess. What you've enrolled in today is a class on Christology. What you've, that, I'm sure you're buzzing about that. I'm sure you're well excited, well up for that. But what you've enrolled in today is a class of Christology, the doctrine of Christ. That's what we're looking at today who he claimed to be. And what he does is he sets out these seven statements of who he is, and then he backs them up with three witnesses. He says who he is, and then he backs them up with three witnesses. So what we're going to do is look at these seven statements of who Jesus says he is. Let me read the seven, and then we'll go through them individually. First, 
The Son of God the Father always, I, the Son of God the Father, always do what my Father is doing. We act in perfect harmony. We're never out of step. Number two, I, the Son of God the Father, am loved by the Father. I am loved by the Father so much so that He always shows me what He exactly what He's doing. Three, I, the Son of God the Father, have authority to raise the dead and give life just like my Father. Number four, I, the Son of God the Father, have been given the right and authority and power to be the one who executes all judgment. Number five, I, the Son of God the Father, am to be honored, worshipped, praised in the same way and to the same degree as my Father. Now, let me just pause here and say this. That is possibly the most important one when it comes to looking at why Christians believe what they believe and why other world religions believe what they believe. And I'll give you a wee test when we come to that one of just what you can do to test, is that religion legit? Is this sack legit? Is this legit? There's a wee test we can do. All right? So, the Son of God is to be worshipped, honored, praised the same way as the Father is. Number six, I, the Son of God, the Father, am the one sent by the Father. And if you believe what the Father says about me, you will have life, and you will never face eternal judgment. Number seven, I, the Son of God, the Father, am the one who will speak the gospel. And those who respond, hear the gospel and respond to it, not only will I give life now, but I will give life eternally. So the seven statements Jesus makes about who he is, what he's come to do, and let's look at them individually. First one, I, the Son of God the Father, always do what my Father is doing. We act in perfect harmony. And this is a, it's a, bit, of a, it's a bit of a mystery. Let's just be honest. It's a bit of a mystery how the Godhead works, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Is there anybody in here who fully understands how the, the Godhead works? Father, Son, and Spirit, co-equal from eternity past to eternity future. No, that's what I thought, and it's the same up here. No one fully understands how the Godhead works. So what does Jesus mean here when he says, when he opens up this and he says, I said to you, truly, truly, I said to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. What does he mean? Is it literally that he sees the Father doing something, and then he does the same? Does it mean that he, it's more likely that he means that he knows what the Father is doing, and then he does the same? But what is important about that statement is this. The Son and the Father always act in complete harmony. What just happened before this? There was a healing at the pool of one man. How many people were at the pool? Loads. Loads of sick people, loads of people who were paralyzed, loads of people with diseases. And Jesus heals one man. Why did he not heal them all? Because he and the Father's perfect will was to heal one man. And so they act in perfect accordance with each other. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He says, I know what the Father's doing. I do what the Father tells me to do. We work in 
coordination with each other, and that's exactly what he wills at that time. So that's what he's doing. The Son of God always does what the Father is doing. They work in perfect harmony together. Second statement. I, the Son of God, am loved by the Father, so much so that he always shows me what he's doing. Right? Why is that important? Why is that important? Why is that statement important? The Father loves the Son. Why is that important? Because here we see the motivation for showing all that the Father does to the Son, because He loves Him. There is this intimacy, there is this uh, relationship between the two, between the three with the Holy Spirit as well, that they love one another. There is this deep sense of devotion to one another. So much so that the lines of communication are always open. And there's, there's a couple of significant points to this. The Father loves the Son, right? There's, a, there's, a, there's one hymn that I have a bit of an issue with, a line on it, and it is, I think it's how deep the Father's love for us, where it says, the Father turns his face away. I'm not going to sing it for you. You'll be glad to know. But it is that line where the father turns the face, his face away. I don't think that's true. I don't think that's true. And the reason I don't think it's true is because the father loves the son and he looked intently into the suffering of the son for us. And that's what makes it significant. He didn't turn his face away. The father looked at the son that he loves, giving his life for us looked straight into it and bore it for us. The Father deeply loves the Son. And so they're always in communication. The lines of communication are always open. There's always an intimacy. And the second application for us is this. If we ever want to have a relationship with God where we hear from God, where we know what God is doing, when we, when we know how to work in accordance with His will, those lines of communication must always be open, and we must develop and, and enrich a, a deep sense of devotion and love for God. I can tell you now, without, without fear of contradiction, God loves you. God loves you completely. And I've said this before, but what blurs the lines? What blocks the communication lines then between us and the Father? What is it? It's us. It's us. If we don't cultivate, if we don't pursue, if we don't go after that relationship with God, that does not, it just doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. So the Father loves the Son. Number two. Number three. I, the Son of God the Father, have authority, verse 21, have authority to raise the dead and give them life just as my Father does. Now, why is this, why is this even significant? Because we all know this. You all come in here today and you know who gives life. Jesus gives life. It's the Sunday school answer. But why is this important that he's saying this? Think about who he's speaking to. He's, spe he's speaking to Jews. Who in the Old Testament has the authority, the only authority to raise the dead? God. God is the only one with the authority to raise the dead. And here Jesus is saying, guess what? 
That authority has been given to me. Who does that make me? God. I am fully God. That's why it's significant. And you can understand then why the, the minds of the listeners are either blown or they're just starting to get raging because of who Jesus is claiming to be. He's clearly setting out that he is God. Jesus is the only one who can raise dead bodies and dead souls. He's the only one. Statement number four. The Son of God, the Son of God the Father, has been given the right and authority and power to be the one who executes all judgment. All judgment. Who is it to on the last day on judgment day who is it to, to every knee will bow and every tongue confess his Lord it is to Jesus Christ the Son he is the one who has been given the authority to judge the living and the dead it is to Jesus Christ we will give an account Paul affirms this in his speech on Mars Hill when he says this, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man, Jesus Christ, whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to him by raising him from the dead. Folks, it is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone who will judge us. You've probably heard the saying, and people say it in a flippant way, and they say it when they're like trying to get out of something, and they're saying it to cover themselves, only God will judge me. They have no idea what they're saying. They have no idea what they're saying. When Jesus returns as a victorious king, he will rule and reign in power and he will execute judgment perfectly in accordance with all righteousness. It is Jesus who will judge. He has been given the authority to do so. Statement number five. I, the Son of God the Father, am to be honored, worshipped, and praised in the same way and to the same degree as the Father is honored, worshipped, and praised. And this is the one where I said this is really, really important when we come to thinking about Christianity and all other world religions. Why is it different? Why is Christianity different to Jehovah's Witnesses? And you may be sitting there going, oh, I thought Jehovah's Witnesses was Christian. Uh-oh. Why is it different? The way in which they honor the Son. The way in which they honor the Son. I don't know if you know this, but in the Quran, Jesus is mentioned. Jesus is respected. But is he given, is he ascribed the honor that he is due, that he says he is due in the Scriptures? No. He's not ascribed that deity, that, that Godship, that he ascribes to himself. So they do not honor the Son the way the Father is honored, and therefore they do not believe 
in the same things we believe on. And so therefore, it is not okay to say that all routes, all roads lead to God. They don't. Jesus is very, very clear on this. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So the next time a Jehovah's Witness comes to your door, this is what you have. Ask them. This is the test. When you want to know if a, a religious sect or another religion or a whatever maybe is legit, ask yourself, do they honor the Son the way that they are supposed to and ascribe to Him the honor that He says He is due? If they don't, run a mile. If they don't, run a mile. This is the difference. We as followers of Christ are to give Him the same honor, the same praise, the same worship as we give the Father and as we give the Holy Spirit. They are to be worshipped equally. That's what sets Christianity apart. Statement number six. I, the Son of God the Father, was the one sent by the Father. If you believe what the Father says about me and what I've come to do, you will receive eternal life and never face eternal judgment. You see, this is one of those statements again that the world would say is unloving or is arrogant or is unkind. So you're telling me that the only way to God is through Jesus. Yes. So you're telling me that I can't go any other way and get to heaven. Yes. It is not unloving or unkind to say what Jesus says. We're not, we, we're not making it up. We, we believe it because Jesus says it. See, the world today would insist that this claim that Jesus is the only way is unloving and is unkind. And we're saying, no, it's not. It's the most loving thing that we can tell you because it is the only way that you can escape eternal judgment and punishment. Here's a question. You might have friends from other religions, other backgrounds, whatever. Is it the most loving thing to let them go on their merry way and face an eternal judgment and eternity in hell? Or is it the most loving thing to say, no, we believe that Jesus is the only way? I think you know the answer. It is the most loving thing to do to tell them the gospel of Jesus Christ. The most loving thing to do. And so, the only way to receive eternal life is to believe that Jesus was sent, believe that the Father sent him for a purpose, that purpose being salvation. We saw it a couple of weeks ago when the, the, the first healing that we looked at, when Jesus said to the people, are you not going to believe unless I keep showing you signs and wonders? That's not what I came to do. I came to save you. I came for salvation. 
And this is what essentially what he's saying here in this statement. I came for a purpose. The Father sent me for a purpose. And that purpose is salvation. And all those who believe in that will be saved. They will be saved. And that takes us on to the seventh statement. I, the Son of God the Father, am the one who will speak the gospel. And those who hear and respond will live eternally. Jesus mentions two types of resurrection here in these verses. Resurrection now and resurrection in the future. One is spiritual in nature, the other one is physical in nature. Consider the the spiritual resurrection for a moment. Just let's think about it, what he describes in verse 25 to 27. Let's just read them. So we know what he's saying here. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him the authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Let's consider the spiritual resurrection. It would be foolish of me, irresponsible of me, to think that in a room of this many people, there are not some in here who are spiritually dead. Spiritually dead. You may be sitting next to one who is spiritually dead. You may be the spouse of one who is spiritually dead. You may be the child of one who is spiritually dead. You may be the mother or the father of one who is spiritually dead. But the reality is, the probability is, that there are some in here who are spiritually dead. And here's the thing. It is only through Jesus Christ that you can become spiritually alive. It is only through Jesus Christ that you can become spiritually alive. Jesus is saying here that when we come to him, not only do we receive life in the future, and we talk about this in Cornerstone quite a bit, that that coming to Jesus is not just your ticket into heaven, but coming to Jesus means life starts now. Life starts right now. And so this is what Jesus is talking about here when he talks about spiritual life, giving you spiritual life now. Yes, your eternity is secured, but you have life now. But the only way that you can receive that life is actually coming to Jesus. And so I want to ask, again, it would be irresponsible, not wise, foolish of me, not to put it in front of you today and say this, have you received that spiritual life from Jesus? genuinely do some heart searching on that. It would be incredibly sad if we were to sit in here, hear the gospel, hear that Jesus was sent by the Father for a purpose, that purpose being salvation, that he would go to the cross, that he would take our sin, that he would take our punishment, that he would, and the Father would look full in the face of that, that he would rise from the dead, ascend to the right hand of the Father, that we would hear all of that for us and not respond to it. 
It is only those who respond to it that will receive life now and life in the future. So ask yourself, have you received that life? Have you received spiritual life? Or are you still dead? Are you still dead? So those are our seven statements. And I understand that that may feel, like I said at the beginning, it may feel like a bit of a theological lecture this morning, but I hope not. And I have literally, like I said in the first term, I have literally skimmed over those seven statements. There's so much more in there. But I hope you picked up the main thing in those seven statements. To boil it all down, to put it all in the mixer and come out with something that you can take away. Jesus is simply saying this, I am God. I am God. And the Jews had a major, major issue with that. Major issue with that. So, what does Jesus do? He knew this, knowing all things. He knew that they would have a problem with it. And so, what does he do? Like any good TV uh, drama, like any good, you know, like the one that came to mind in between services was like, this is like a good episode of Suits, where Harvey's and Baller, who watched Suits? Anybody watch Suits? Many Suits watch. Oh, come on. Get on Suits. Excellent show. But Suits, TV drama about like solicitors and lawyers and all that there. Harvey's and Baller. What does he do? He brings in witnesses, good witnesses. Out of the blue, just they appear out of nowhere because he always wins. Anyway, Jesus, knowing that the Jews would have a major problem, brings in three heavyweight witnesses to back up what he's just said. And those heavyweight witnesses are John the Baptist, God the Father, and the Scriptures. So he's going to turn this around. He's going to be like, here's who I am. I am God. And here, is witness, here are witnesses to back that up. And so he starts with John the Baptist. Why John the Baptist? Let me refresh your memory from the start of John what, he, what uh, John the Gospel writer says about John the Baptist. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, and he came as a witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. So here we have Jesus appealing to his witness, John the Baptist, saying, John told you about me. John was about me. John showed, continued to show you me. What was the most what was one of the best verses when we looked at John the Baptist? What did he say? He must increase, I must decrease. I'm going to get out of the way. I'm going to highlight Jesus. It's all about him. So, but why does Jesus appeal to John the Baptist? Because he says here, I don't need, any, I don't need the witness of, of human beings. I don't need that. But you obviously do. That's why he does it. He says, I don't need it. I don't need to defend myself, but you obviously need someone to tell you who I am. Here's John the Baptist. John the Baptist bore witness about me. He said who I was. He told you who I was. Believe him. Believe him. Why? Because John had built up a a certain amount of credibility with the Jewish people. Remember, they flocked to him. 
They flocked to John the Baptist. They were going out to be baptized by John. They loved John for a certain amount of time. So here Jesus is saying, listen, this is the guy that you respected. Listen to him. He told you about me. He told you what I came to do. Here's John the Baptist. Second witness. God the Father. Now, you don't get any bigger witness than this. This is ultimately the big guns he's bringing out. Jesus is saying, even God the Father bears witness about me. What does he mean here when he says God the Father in verse 36? Let me read these verses to you so that you see what, I, what I'm saying. Verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. John the Baptist was a great witness. But the one that I have now is a greater witness. The Father. But the testimony that I have now is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father sent me. Jesus says here that the works that I am doing, these miracles, these signs, these wonders, prove to you who I am because the Father has given me them to do. How many miracles did John the Baptist do? It's not a trick question. Well, it is a trick question, but it's not a trick question. It's not a, not a rhetorical question. I was looking for an answer. I was. The answer is zero. He's a good witness, but he's not the ultimate witness. The ultimate witness is the Father who has given me these works to do, and these signs, these wonders that I am doing should prove to you who I am saying I am. I am God. And this shows you that I am God. Because the Father has given me them to do. Third and final witness. So that's John the Baptist, God the Father, and then he points to the Scriptures. Let's read what he says about the Scriptures. Speaking to the Jews, speaking to religious leaders, this is what he says. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. There's two ways to read that. Two ways that commentators read it. Commentators, some commentators read it as a command. Some commentators read it as a, just a, a point that Jesus is making. If you read it as a command, you, read it, you search the Scriptures. Go and search the Scriptures and you'll see that it points about me. But who's Jesus speaking to? He's speaking to people who search the Scriptures diligently all the time. So it's not a command. It is a statement of fact that Jesus is making. Jesus is saying, you have searched the Scriptures. And you think that in the Scriptures you'll find life, but it is the very Scriptures that you search point to me, and I am the one who gives life. Now, why is that important? It's important because of this. Because people today make the very same mistake. People today make the very same mistake. There could be people in this room now making the very same mistake. There could be people in this room now building their Christian identity on how much they know rather than who they know. There could be people in this room building their identity on how much Bible they know rather than the Jesus of the Bible that they know. You've heard it before, I'm sure, the cliche, it's a cliche because it's true. Some people, instead of calling the Trinity Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, call the Trinity the Father, Father, Son, and Holy Scriptures. 
That's not the Trinity. You can read the Bible all your life and miss Jesus. You can read the Bible all your life and miss Jesus. That's exactly what went on here. There was a group of people, uh, an early heresy called Gnosticism. And that's exactly what happened there. Gnosticism was this notion of just knowing. If you knew enough, you would be saved. Folks, let that, let, let that not be us. Let that not be us that we think we know enough and we actually miss Jesus. It's a real danger. But let me say this as well. Let me flip that. Because here's what we could do with that very easily. What we could say is, well, then I don't have to read the Bible because I don't want to know too much. Let's not go down that route either. To know the Scriptures is important. To read the Scriptures is important. But to look for Jesus in the Scriptures is even more important. And it is of ultimate importance to find Jesus in there. Not just for knowledge's sake, but to know Him, to love Him, to follow Him. That's why we have them, so that we can do those things better. Jesus points to the Scriptures. He points to, first of all, John the Baptist and says, John the Baptist bore witness about me. The Father, through the works that I am doing, bear witness about me. The Scriptures that you have steeped yourselves in but have missed me. They point to me. And so we have these seven statements Jesus makes about himself, claims to be God, puts it out there. There's no bones about it. There's no mistaking it. He is claiming to be God. Backs it up with these three witnesses. But why is that significant for us today? Because you might be thinking there now, thanks John for the theological lecture, but I don't know how this applies to me two hours from now, or tomorrow morning, or whatever. How does it? How does it? Here's how it applies. And I want you to hear this clearly. God died for you. God died for you. Jesus says he is God and he died for you. When I said that in the first service this morning, it hit me like a ton of bricks because my, I'll let you into my mind where I went, literally just as I said the statement, God died for me, God died for you. What more do you want? What more are you searching for? What more do you need than that? Than the God of the universe gave himself for you. I don't need any more than that. You don't need any more than that. You are loved beyond belief that the God of the universe would give himself for you.
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Father, I do pray today that you, Holy Spirit, would do the work that you can only do. That you would take the words that you have inspired and that you would put them so deeply into our hearts that we would know, know that you love us. Know that you have given yourself for us. Know that we are forgiven. Know that we can walk in freedom because of you. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would do this. Father, I pray that we would honor the Son, worship the Son, praise the Son in the right way. Help us to give him his place. You love him. Help us to love him too. And it's in his beautiful name we pray. Amen. And so when we come to communion this morning, that's really where I'm going to direct our focus this morning. It's I'm directing our focus to the fact that God himself gave himself on the cross for us. And we proclaim that to one another. Sometimes I, I do genuinely think we over-personalize communion. We think it's all about me, it's all about me, it's all about you know, just me and my wee relationship with Jesus. It's not, the Bible tells us it's so much more than that. The Bible tells us as you take the bread and you remember his body broken for you, you are proclaiming to one another that message. The Bible tells us that when we take the cup and remember his blood that was shed for us, we are proclaiming that message to one another. It's not just about you. So much bigger than you. So much bigger than me. And so remember the God of the universe gave himself for what? The church. And if you're following Jesus, you are part of that church. If you're not following Jesus this morning, I want you to genuinely consider and think through the fact that the God of the universe gave himself for you. What is holding you back from responding to that message? He loves you. He has given himself for you. I lovingly ask, though, if you haven't responded to that message yet, that you don't take communion. It just wouldn't make sense for you to proclaim something that you don't believe in. And so I lovingly ask that you don't take communion. But let's worship now and remember what I said about honoring, worshiping, praising Jesus. Giving him his correct place. Let's do that now as we think about his body broken and his blood shed.